0: Good morning, everyone. And if you have a Bible, please do keep it open at that passage. And I want to just highlight two main uh, thoughts this morning from it. We've been looking at it for the last seven or eight weeks. We're going to finish next week in it. But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you speak, and thank you that you act. And we pray you'll speak to us this morning and act in us and then act through us, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Some years ago when I was uh, a young curate up north on an estate in Bradford, I'd been out on my day off and I was about six or seven miles from the parish where I lived and served and uh, we were in a traffic queue and I noticed a dog run in front of me. A little black dog, had a red collar and uh, a little cloverleaf dog tag. And uh, it was clearly scared and jittery uh, weaving through the traffic and obviously figured it was trying to make its way home. Or... And I was concerned for it, but the traffic moved on and uh, I sort of kind of just wished it well and hoped it would get home. About three miles further on down the road, when we were coming back, but about 10 miles from my home, there was the dog again, running through the traffic, little black furry thing, little terrier with this red collar and little cloverleaf dog tag. And I thought about that dog that week. I wondered whether it got home, whether it was all right. And then about five days after I'd seen it, walking around my parish, which was about 10 miles away from where I last saw it, there was the dog. Black, red collar, little cloverleaf tag. Only this time in a really sorry state. There was evidence that it had obviously been in a fight with another dog or dogs and there was blood uh, around its mouth and uh, its hair was matted and there it was feeding on the dustbin on a dustbin bag and the rubbish that was coming out of it and I went to try and help the thing and it saw me and was terrified and ran away and I called a group of young lads and we tried to chase down this dog although of course the dog thought it was in trouble and just scarped. And then the Lord spoke to me, doesn't often talk to me, but this was one of those. And he said to me, you're worried about that dog that's hurting, harassed, helpless, and far from home. And that's how I feel about the world. So many are hurting and harassed and helpless and far from home and are feeding on garbage. Never forgot it. I think at the time I cared more about that dog than about the people that the Lord was caring for, if I'm honest. I was reminded of that story when I was preparing this talk on this passage which has been our theme for several weeks. And from it we clearly see a number of things, big brush strokes that frame it. And the first is that God sees And God cares about our suffering. That he's not ignorant of what's going on. And he's not indifferent to what is going on. And he's not distant. God sees and he cares. And then we see that God cares and God comes to make a difference to it. And we have that lovely first verse. Uh, In verse 1, where it says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. We see the whole Trinity caught up in this beautiful drama. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, the Father, is upon me, Jesus, the Messiah. All of God getting in on the action to come and to bring about transformation. The Lord Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, not for his sake. He's anointed by the Spirit, not so he can feel better or feel affirmed by the Father, although that occurs at his baptism. He is anointed by the Spirit for the other. He is the man pro nobis. He's the one for us. His incarnation then his anointing and his ministry is solely for the other. For you and me and everyone else. So God sees and God comes, and then God acts to do us good. It's all for the good. You read through that list, it's all for the good. He doesn't come to do us in, he comes to do us good. He sees and he cares and he comes and he acts. And that is at the heart of our faith, at the heart of our understanding of God, And in these eight verses or ten verses, we'll have a final sermon on this next week from Stephen, we just see this concentrated, distilled goodness of the divine. This is who he is. This is how he is. This is what he does. If you want to know what God is like, tuck into these verses in Isaiah 61. It is the, the manifesto of the Messiah, it's a, this is the ministry of Jesus, who He is, what he's like and what He does. And let's just look at some of them. We've been looking at these weeks. I'll just give headings. It comes to preach the good news. With God, it's always good news. He's good news. So many of us live with so much bad news. Turn on the news. Turn, you know, pick up a paper. We're just bombarded with a litany of bad news, pulling things down. When Jesus comes, he's here to bring good news. We're the good news people. And good news to the poor. If the poor aren't the first to benefit from the ministry of Jesus, then it might not be the ministry of Jesus. First and foremost, the good news to the poor. The little people the broken people, the marginalized people, the people without power, the people on the edge. And he comes to set free those who are oppressed, oppressed by sin and oppressed by the demonic and oppressed by, you know, structures in society that just crush and suck the breath out of us and to bind up the open wounds, to heal those torn hearts. what he does. He sees the milieu in which we are and he sees the mess inside of us. And he wants to deal with both. To inaugurate the year of God's favor, literally the year of Jubilee, the year when all the debts were cancelled and all the slaves went free. To announce God's judgment, God's justice on all that is wrong. He's both putting it right and he's punishing where the perpetrators refuse to receive his grace. He's going to put it right one day. And he comforts those who mourn. And he gives beauty. I love that word there. He, he beautifies. Our world is so ugly at times. When he made it, he made it good, and he made us very good, but since the fall there's been an unraveling, a marring, and a scarring, and a tarring, and it just ain't beautiful so often, but he comes to beautify It's Who he is, it's how he is, and it's what he does, to make strong oaks of righteousness out of those who were formerly weak and sinful, to repair crumbling ruins, to make us into a priests and ministers corporately so that we can worship and serve him and that we can represent him serving in the world and then I love that line He brings everlasting joy because when we see what he does who he is how he is when we experience the benefit of what he's done then the overflow will be joy what a thing that's who God is and he sees and he cares and he comes and he sorts. And then verse 8 tells us why. The kind of presupposition for this action is this I, the Lord, love justice. I, the Lord, love justice. And then the next phrase in the Hebrew, it's rather complicated, literally means I hate the theft that consumes, that destroys, literally is the word for Holocaust, that burns you up. I love justice. And the flip side is I hate injustice that robs you. And then he says, I will restore. Thank God for that. Let me make two main points. First, God loves justice. It's simple this morning. God loves justice. I, the Lord, love justice. This is not a description of him from others. It's not an opinion from others. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the suffering servant, with his self-disclosure, his self-disclosure. Affirmation. He's telling us. He's giving us his understanding of who he is and what he is about. He's saying, This is me. If you want to know what Jesus is like, if you want to know why he came, if you want to know what the Spirit upon him is for, if you want to see the tell us of that, the direction, the goal, and the purpose of his ministry, you read this passage. This is what God is like, and this is what God wants to do. I the Lord, Yehovah Yahweh, I, the I am, loves justice. It's no small matter. Not incidental. It's fundamental. It's the heart of the matter of God. The psalmist says justice is the foundation of God's throne. That's good. But actually here it's saying it's more than that. I think justice is the foundation of his being and of his doing. And he loves it, ahav. He, the word for love there, the word for love in Hebrew, there are two main ones, but this one here, this, the root of it literally means to give. So it's not feeling or emotion or sentiment, although God does have pathos, feeling and is moved. The Greeks said God was apatheia, indifferent, passive, that we were irrelevant to him and that we were just pawns flicked around on a chessboard. But the scripture shows that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is a God who feels and who cares and who is moved by our plight. And here he loves and this love is not our. This love moves towards us and it is a love that gives. It's the outgiving God. And God loves justice. Mishpat, that's the word here. It's actually the modern word for law. I think mishpatim are lawyers in modern Hebrew. I like the way that Dr. Tim Keller, a theologian church leader in New York, puts it. He says, this word, mishpat, is rectifying Justice. So it's not just some sort of statute in law. It's the enacting of those foundations and principles. It is the God who gives to put right. It's, the, it's law and order. It's the ordering based on the law of God. Right order. Right living with him and our neighbour. And there is within it morality and equity and charity. And so this is the mark of God, and this is the ministry of the Son of God. I, the Lord, love justice, and that's why I come to do these things and establish this. And it's what we see in Jesus. Professor John Oswald, the commentator on Isaiah, says, the Messiah doesn't hurl words at us. I love that. You're not just there to preach. There to, there's preaching, there's the declaration of truth, and then there's praxis, the doing of it. So he does it, and just look what he does, the the giving in love of his justice. As we look at the Gospels, we see what he does, not just what he says, and he feeds the hungry. Why? We're told he's moved with compassion. Literally in the Greek, he's gutted when he sees it and moves towards them. Justice gives. And he touches the leper, again, moved with compassion. And he restores the prostitute because he sees that their prostitution is wrong and he sees what's led them to prostitution. And he doesn't condemn, I don't condemn, you leave your life of sin, but there is restoration. And he absolves sinners and raises the dead son of a widow who doesn't have any means to live on, no social security then. Why does he raise the boy? It's not simply a demonstration of power. It's an overflow of compassion, but he's putting things right. He tells the rich man that salvation had come to his house when the guy says that he's going to give away his money to the poor and pay back all his debts. And he says that at judgment day, one of the criteria of those who are righteous, who are the sheep and not the goats, is that their lives have been marked by caring for the poor and the marginalized, the oppressed and the outcast. And that they've seen him in them. You know, I love a verse in Acts 10, 38. Peter is presenting the gospel for the first time to the Gentiles. At Cornelius' house, the Roman centurion. And, uh, you know, he's sort of feeling his way through because he's, he's out of his comfort zone. But he sums up the ministry of Jesus. And he says this, he went round doing good. Justice isn't just statutes of law, it's not just principles, it's praxis. And Jesus goes around doing good. He is just, he's the just one, and he does justice. He went around doing good. I wonder what they say about us as a church community. I wonder what people say about me. Probably he talks a lot. I'd like him to say one day he went around doing good. The greatest good was of course the self-giving at Calvary. And those three days, those three Easter days, when he willingly, volitionally of his own free will lays down his life and is crucified within the mystery of God and the tyranny of sin. And takes upon himself the punishment for the sins of the world. And God accepts his suffering as sufficient for, to cover our sin. I don't understand it. And he dies. And then three days later, he rises again. And that is God's great yes to his death for us. And the new life that is opened up. And the cancelling of sin. And we who trust in him, who hold on to him, will rise with him. It's glorious. The world's got nothing to compare. that's the three days of Easter but the three years before that are him going around doing good and we're to be those who preach those three days and who offer the benefits of the three days but we're also to be those who imitate the three years of the good. In verse 8 there is a kind of summary at the end of Jesus' ministry of the goal of it and it says I will restore I will restore that's what all those things are about all those seeing and doing of God are about ultimately there come they're an overflow of his justice, the enacting of his justice that he loves and the goal of it is uh, is to restore to make all things right and new I remember Years ago, you know, when I was first a minister here in Oxford, I, I, I was just focused on one thing, and that was, that was kind of discipling students. I was a university chaplain for seven years, and I just wanted to disciple them. I wanted to get the gospel into them, and I wanted to send them out as gospelers. Telling the gospel and bringing people to faith in Christ Jesus. That, that was it. For like seven years, that's what I was doing. And I remember someone in the student ministry came and said, we're going to start, we're starting a new ministry. It's called Speak. And we're going to speak truth to power. And we're going to speak up for the marginalized and the oppressed and the needy. And I wonder if we can just promote this with the student ministry here. And do you know what I said? No. We're a gospel church. We're about the gospel. And that stuff, plenty of people are doing that, but they're not doing what we're doing. So we're going to gospel it. Okay? It's not that it's wrong. It's just, not, it's just not for us. I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. Fortunately, years later, I was able to you know, put things right. But for so long, I had a myopic view of what ministry was focused on the three days, not the three years. And it isn't an either or, but we mustn't have a bifurcation. It's both and. I will restore. I remember going, one of the things that changed my mind, visiting a ministry called Betel, which works with drug addicts all over the world and it takes them off the street. And it gives them a home, it gives them a family, it gets them off drugs, it gives them a trade and a skill and a profession. I remember going to this church, largest evangelical church in Spain, in Madrid. I was invited out, and I was overwhelmed. I mean, I was really blown away. 85% of the people in the church had all been heroin addicts. There were about 500 people in that particular congregation. They'd all been heroin addicts, and they were rescued. And they were restored. And I, I said to the senior pastor, Elliot Tepper, I said, I said uh, you know, where are the drug addicts? He said, look around. And those who aren't, are the family of those who, who were, who were so blown away by the grace of God, they joined the church too, because they saw the difference. And in, in the church in those days, all the elders sat on the stage behind the preacher, and they invited me out to preach, but they were the ones teaching me. There were all these people sat there. And Eliot said to me, just went like this. He said, a murderer, a murderer, a murderer, a murderer. I went down the line. And all of these people had been in prison, or nearly all of the elders. They'd been murderers. They'd been done life. And yet God had met them and turned their lives around. And he restored. And I came back shaken and stirred. (laughs) And I knew I needed to rethink and look again at the Bible. It's what he does. He doesn't just leave them to it. He doesn't want to leave people in the mess that they've caused or that's been put upon them. He wants to restore. I, the Lord, love justice. Secondly, I've only got two points, so you're all right. We've got to love what God loves. It's what he loves. We've got to love what he loves. Mrs. Moore in E.M. Forster's A Passage to India, I've not read the book or got the T-shirt, but I've watched the movie a few times, and she says, poor talkative little Christianity. All you do is talk. What are you going to do? Of course, that's not wholly true, but it has often been true that the church has been good at talking, but not necessarily at doing. And indeed, sometimes the church has been the very cause and source of injustice through its history, where it's abused and misused its power. But here's the thing: wherever the Spirit of God. The spirit that rested on Jesus is received and responded to. The opposite is true. And the spirit of God who leads Jesus to do justice leads the church to do similarly. We are both the preachers of good news and the modelers of it. We herald the gospel of salvation, but we seek to work and echo eternity now glimpsing what the nature and character of God is revealed in his kingdom. And we echo it now through the work of the church. And we seek to bring the good news and be the good news and bring healing and deliverance and comfort and bind up the brokenhearted and establish oaks of righteousness and do justice. Charles Finney was one of the most famous evangelists of the 19th century. And was responsible for leading a great revival in the middle of the 19th century in America. He said this, the great business of the church is to reform the world. And if she doesn't engage in social reform, she grieves the Holy Spirit and hinders revival. It's an evangelist. His whole life is preaching the Gospels. Not either or. Both hands. The first thing Jesus does is preach the good news to the poor. The second thing he does is show wise good news and bring good news. Isaiah 61 is a charismatic theology. You know, some people would say, well, I'd rather go to Acts chapter 2, or I'd rather go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or I'd rather go to Acts chapter 19, or I'd rather go to Ephesians chapter 1 verse uh, uh, not 18 is it, you know, or wherever. Ephesians chapter 3, life in the Spirit, fullness of the Spirit, and so on. Tongues and gifts and... Well, we don't have to pick, we don't have to pick and choose. But this is a theology of the Spirit that preaches good news to the poor, then enacts good news to the poor. Years ago, I wrote a book on the Spirit-filled life called More, and it sold quite a few, and I probably got about 200 invitations to speak at conferences because of that one book. People liked it, More! And then as I pursued after God to understand the nature of More, I got to Holiness. Oaks of righteousness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Oh, there's oaks of, and so I wrote about oaks of righteousness, and I wrote a book on holiness, that didn't sell very many, and I think I got about five invites instead of two hundred. People want more, but they don't want righteousness, even though more of the Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit leads us to more holiness, like the Spirit. And then a couple of years later, I wrote a book on justice, and I didn't sell hardly any. Got like, got remaindered immediately. <laughs> and I think I got about three invites. But the spirit of more is the spirit of holiness. It's also the spirit of justice. If we want more of the spirit, it's going to make us more like Jesus. And he's going to put the things that move Jesus on our hearts. And we're going to become concerned about holiness and about Justice, But wherever the Spirit has been hosted and welcomed and and, uh, our posture has been to receive and respond to the work of the Spirit, there's been a concern for people's eternity and their destiny and being right with God and preaching the gospel. And there's also been a concern about their life here and now and the context of their life and the structures that, that actually diminish the life that God has got for them and restoring them and healing them of the, the shadows that have come upon them through life. When we look at the history of the church, we can see some great shining examples of Christians who've received the Spirit and, and it's opened their eyes to see what God sees and opened their heart to care as He cares and then opened their hand to move to give as He would. How about this for a list? And it's just a you know, off the top of my head list. The Samaritans, Bernardo's, Tear Fund, Oxfam, Red Cross, Christian Aid, World Vision, Leprosy Society, Amnesty International, Betel, Arosha, Viva Network, International Justice Mission, NSPCC, Habitat for Humanity, Christians Against Poverty, and Compassion. These are some of the biggest charities in the world making the biggest difference. Everyone founded by a committed Christian moved by the Spirit of God to make a difference. And so I feel today that God is wanting to stir us and those who are listening online, today you're listening to it. God is wanting to speak and saying, what is in your hand? What is in your heart? What can you see? The Spirit of God is upon you, and He wants to use you to make a difference. Someone, he wants to use you to make a difference. Some are to give and some are to go. And we need to see ministries and charities like that replicated and scaled up. And we need to see new ministries, new charities, new startups rising up. But every Christian needs to be signed up. And it should be reflected in how we feel and how we give our money and how we invest some of our time. There should be some indicator in all of our lives that we follow the God who loves justice and restores. And because we follow the God who loves justice and restores, that we're going to love it and we're going to work for it. Let me finish with this story. It's an old one, but it's a good one. When Mother Teresa began her work in Calcutta amongst the poorest of the poor actually some Hindu leaders tried to stop her because they said that somehow she was interfering with the karmic cycle and that people in that condition had got there as a result of the you know the negative in their previous life or even the positive maybe it was a move upwards on the cycle but actually those who were the poorest of the poor and and beggars and so on you know they that was their lot that's their karma so you shouldn't interfere with it anyway she didn't listen and she cracked on and on one occasion, there was a group of uh, reporters from the West who'd come over to look at her and look at the ministry. And just as they came, they brought in a beggar off the street who was dying. And uh, it's, the account says that this beggar had was open sores, open wounds, And uh, they were full of weeping pus, and there were maggots feeding on the pus. I've seen things like that, not in people, but before I was a priest, I was a butcher. And often in the summer, the the chillers would go down, and the big flies would come in and lay their eggs, and they'd hatch, and, and you'd pull out this great side of beef, and then you'd see all the maggots running along. You'd have to scrape them off and clean it out and cut it back, and... I remember all oh, the smell, rancid, but this is a person there. And the nuns, the sisters, washed his wounds and then bandaged him, and then he died there and then. And the Westerners filming this, interviewing, said, well, that was a bit of a waste. Surely you need a little bit more pragmatic. You haven't got uh, inexhaustible you know, supplies. You know, surely you should invest in those that you can get a return on. Someone who's going to be able to bene- you know, benefit from it, and you can benefit from them benefiting. And Mother Teresa, and, and they said, why do you do this? Mother Teresa replied, because I know this maggot-infested beggar To be loved by Jesus every bit as much as I am. And she said, the beggar's last words as he died were these. I have lived all my life like an animal on the streets. And now I'm dying like an angel. There in a bed, surrounded by the sisters with a cross above his head. That's beauty for ashes that's restoration, that's transformation, that's the grace of God, that's the kingdom of heaven, that is the mark of the spirit, that is the love of justice. Most of us are never gonna find ourselves in that sort of a situation. But God wants to use us to be a means of grace where we can, and for some, You know, maybe big brushstroke, maybe big and structural and serious, but others smaller. But God wants all of us, all of us who are his people in his church, to love what he loves and to do what he does. I, the Lord, love justice. Let us love what he loves and do what we can to do what he did. Amen.